Section 61 of The Cambridge Modern History, Volume 1, The Renaissance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 18 Catholic Europe by the Reverend William Barry. Part 1 so far back as the Council of Vienne in 1311, William Durandus, nephew of the Resolute Doctor, when commissioned by Clement V to advise him on the method of holding that assembly, had answered in a volume which we may still consult that, quote, the Church ought to be reformed in head and members, end quote. The phrase was caught up, was echoed during the Great Schism at Pisa, 1409, in the stormy sessions of Constance, 1414 to 18, at Basel, 1431 to 49, and to the very end of the 15th century, it became a watchword, not only in the manifestos of French or German princes at issue with the Apostolic See, but on the lips of popes themselves and in official documents. But though searching and sweeping, the formula had its limits. Reformation was conceivable of persons, institutions, and laws. It could not, on Catholic principles, be admitted within the sphere of dogma or identified with revelation. It must leave untouched the root idea of medieval Christendom that the priesthood possessed a divine power in the Mass and in the sacraments, conferred by the Episcopal laying on of hands, it affected nothing beyond discipline or practice, and only that portion of the canon law might be revised which was not implicitly contained in the Bible or in the unanimous teaching of the fathers as expounded by the Church. Fox of Winchester, writing to Wolsey in 1520, well defined the scope of amendment. He had found, he says, that everything belonging to the primitive integrity of the clergy and especially to the monastic state, was perverted either by dispensations or corruptions, or else had become obsolete from age or depraved by the iniquity of the times. Thus, even Alexander the Sixth, startled into momentary penitence by the murder of his son, the Duke of Gandia, appointed a committee of cardinals in 1497 to draw up a scheme for the reformation of morals, which, he declared, must begin with the Roman curia. The mere summary of abuses to be corrected, or of better dispositions to be taken, in the government of the Church, extends to 128 heads, as set forth in the papal letters beginning, quote, in apostolica sede specula, end quote. Julius II, addressing the Fifth Lateran Council, 1512, reckons among its chief objects ecclesiastical reform. Before its opening, he had named a commission which was to set in order the officials of his court. Leo X, in 1513, accepted the rules which had been laid down by these cardinals with a view to redressing the grievances of which complaint was made and published them during the eighth session of Lateran as his own. Nevertheless, not until the fathers at Trent had brought their labors, 1545 to 64, to an end, did the new discipline, 
promulgated by them in 25 sessions and explicitly termed a reformation take effect in the Roman Church. By that time, the northern peoples had fallen away. Christendom was rent into many pieces, and the hierarchy, the religious orders, and the mass had been abolished wherever Lutherans or Calvinists prevailed. It does not enter into the scope of the present chapter to enlarge upon a subject treated elsewhere in this volume the causes which led up to the Protestant Reformation. But, as was made clear by the rise of the Jesuits, the decrees of Trent, the acts and virtues of a multitude of saints, the renewed austerity of the papal court, and the successful resistance to a further advance on the part of Lutheranism in Germany and of Calvinism in France and the Belgic provinces, there also existed a Catholic Reformation within the Church, not tinged with heresy, but founded on a deeper apprehension of the dogmas in dispute and on a passionate desire for their triumph. In one sense, this great movement might be described as a reaction, since it aimed at bringing back the past. In another, it was merely a development of principles, or a more effectual realization of them, whose beginnings are discernible long before Trent. Thus, we may regard the 15th century as, above all, an era of transition. It exhibits violent contrasts, especially among the high clergy and in religious associations, between a piety which was fruitful in good works and a worldliness which has never been surpassed. Corruption on a scale so wide as, in the opinion of many, to justify revolt from pope and bishops was matched by remarkable earnestness in preaching necessary reforms, by devotion to learning in the service of religion, by an extraordinary flow of beneficence, attested by the establishment of schools, hospitals, brotherhoods, guilds, and asylums for the destitute, no less than by the magnificent churches, unrivaled paintings and multiplied festivals, and by the new shrines, pilgrimages, miracle plays, and popular gatherings for the celebration of such events as the Jubilees of 1475 and 1500, which fling over the whole period an air of gaiety and suggest that life in the days of the Renaissance was often a public masquerade. Catholic tradition, in the shape of an all-pervading and long-established church, towered high above the nations. It was embodied in a vast edifice of laws. It kept its jurisdiction intact, its clergy exempt, and held its own courts all over Christendom. It owned from a fifth to a third of the soil in Mortmain. It had revenues far exceeding the resources of kings, to which it was continually adding by fresh taxation. It offered enormous prizes to the well-born in its bishoprics, abbacies, and cathedral chapters, which carried with them feudal dominion over lands, serfs, and tribute-yielding cities. It opened a career to clever, ambitious lads of the middle and lower class. Within its cloisters, women might study as well as pray, and rule their own estates, wielding the crozier, 
and equaling prelates in dignity and power. The church, too, maintained her preeminence, though shaken once and again, in the old universities, at Paris, Oxford, and Bologna, while founding new seats of learning at Louvain, 1426, or along the Rhine, as far east as Ingolstadt, 1472, or even Frankfurt on the Oder, 1506, and as far south as Alcala, 1499. Her authority was still strong enough to put down the Hussites for a time, though not without conceding to them points of discipline. It showed no dismay at the light which was dawning in humanism, and it gave back to ruined and desolate Rome the Augustan glory of a capital in which letters, arts, manners attained to a fullness of life and splendor of expression such as had not been witnessed in Europe since the fall of the empire. From the days of Nicholas V down to those of Leo X, Rome was the world's center. The popes held in their hands the key of religion. They aspired to possess the key of knowledge. Along every line of enterprise and from every point of the compass except one, they were visible. They would not dedicate themselves to the long-sought reformation in head and members, although they allowed its necessity again and again in the most emphatic terms. The plans which were laid before them by ardent churchmen like Cesarini we shall consider as we proceed, but they declined to take those measures without which no lasting improvement of the curia was to be anticipated. They were loath to summon a representative council. They refused to cross the Alps and meet the German people, or to listen when it drew up its grievances in formal array. Had the Fifth of Lateran fulfilled its task, instead of leaving it to the Council of Trent half a century later, the Diet of Worms might have never met, and Luther would perhaps have lingered out his years in a cell at Wittenberg. Two series of considerations may explain why the papacy shrank from calling a fresh parliament of Western prelates and sovereigns, and why it relegated these questions of discipline to a secondary place. One was that the Holy See felt itself engaged in the necessary and therefore just enterprise of recovering its temporal independence, shattered since the migration to Avignon. That plea has been urged on behalf of Sixtus IV and still more of Julius II. The other was that it had not long emerged from a period of revolution. In Rome, the Church had been constantly regarded as a monarchy with the Pope at its head. He was the supreme judge of spiritual causes, from whom there could be no appeal. But in the fourth and fifth sessions of Constance, 1415, another view had prevailed, a view unknown to earlier ages and impossible to carry out in practice that of the superiority to the Pope of the Church in Council assembled. This doctrine, put forward by Cardinal Dailly, by Gerson, and by the followers of William Ockham, might be welcome to lawyers, but it had no roots among the people. It had never flourished in the schools deemed orthodox, and it irritated as much as it alarmed the pontiff. 
At Basel it led to repeated and flagrant violations of the ancient canons. During the eighteen years of its existence, 1431 to 49, this convention had deposed one pope, Eugenius IV, elected by lawful scrutiny. It had chosen another, Felix V, Duke of Savoy, who was hardly recognized beyond the valley of the Rhone. It had compelled bishops to sit and vote, not only with simple priests, but with laymen, on questions which concerned the Catholic faith. It had submitted to the feeble emperor Sigismund. Its president was D'Alemant, the cardinal of Avignon, an ominous title, and for ten years it sat in permanent schism. Professing to do away with abuses, it enacted them once more in the shape of commendum, annates, and pluralities. When the large-minded reformers, Cardinal Julian Cesarini and Nicholas of Cusa, forsook its tumultuous sittings, when Aeneas Silvius, that politic man of letters, looked round for a wealthier patron and joined himself to Eugenius, and when the German prelates could no longer hold it up as a shield against the strokes of the curia, the council came to an end, and with it all hopes of reform on the parliamentary system. Felix V, last of the anti-popes, laid down the keys and the tiara, April 1449, in the house called La Grotte at Lausanne, under the roof of which Gibbon was afterwards to complete his history of the decline and fall. Henceforth it was evident that the spiritual restoration of Christendom would come, if ever it came, from the zeal of individuals. For the council had failed. No pope would risk his supreme authority by a repetition of Basel. And the rules of the Roman chancery, which Martin V had confirmed, were, as a matter of course, approved by his successors. Private effort could do much, so long as it refrained from calling dogma in question or resisting the legal claims of pope and bishops, but the creed was not in danger. So far as we can judge from the local councils and the literature of the years before us, in no part of Europe did men at this time cast away their inherited beliefs, with the exception of a humanist here and there, like Pomponazzo at Rome, and even these kept their denials to themselves, or acquiesced in the common practices of religion. In 1466, groups of the Fraticelli were discovered and put down by Pius II at Poli, near Palestrina. In the same year, a German sect, of which the chiefs were brothers Jenko and Livin von Würzburg, was denounced to Henry, bishop of Ratisbon, by the papal legate. The Fraticelli appeared again in 1471 on the coast of Tuscany, and notices are extant of heretics in the Diocese of Rheims and at Bologna. The Maranos, or Crypto-Jews, in Spain deserve separate consideration. Nor did the Waldensians ever cease to exist in Italy. But obstinate unbelief was rare. Even a reprobate like Sigismondo Malatesta the monstrous tyrant of Rimini, would not die without the last sacraments. Machiavelli, who writes as if the Christian faith were an exploded superstition, had a priest with him when he expired. Of Caterina Sforza, whose crimes and profligacies were notorious, 
it is on record that while she sinned, she endowed convents and built churches. Other examples of repentant humanists are Giovanni Pontano and Antonio Galatea. Among Germans who, after quarreling with the papal authorities or questioning articles of the creed, came back to offer their submission, may be remarked Gregor Heimburg, and in the next generation, Conrad Mutianus of Erfurt. It has been stated elsewhere that the famous Wessel spent his last days in the cloister of the Agnettenberg. Revolt, followed by repentance, was a common feature in the Italian genius. But indeed, the rules of the Inquisition, which allowed of easy retractation, imply that few heretics would persist in their opinion after once being called to account. During the ninety years with which we are concerned, no popular uprising against the authorities of the Church, on purely dogmatic grounds, is recorded to have taken place anywhere outside Bohemia. Intolerance was not a characteristic feature of an age abounding in hope. Dazzled with discoveries and inventions, and far from ascetic in its habits of life, its outdoor spectacles, its architecture, painting, music, and popular diversions, the later 15th century was eclectic rather than critical. At Rome itself, an incredible liberty of discussion was allowed under all the popes of the Renaissance, and though Paul II dealt severely with Platina and the Roman academicians whom he accused of unbelief, his motives seem to have been personal or political rather than religious. Philosophy, too, was undergoing a serious change. Plato had supplanted Aristotle in his influence over men's minds, and the high doctors of the school, Aquinas, Bonaventura, and Scotus, had lost no little of their power, since Ockham brought into repute his logic of skepticism, which fixed between religion and metaphysics an impassable gulf where every human system disappeared in the void. It is not, therefore, without significance that the chief reformer of the age, Cardinal Nicholas of Cusa, exhibits in his action and writings not only the pious enthusiasm which he learned from the brethren of the common life, but a passion for every kind of knowledge, or that his method of apologetics sought in every form of religion its affinities with the Christian, as we learn from his Dialogue of Peace, or The Concord of Faith. His speculations, afterwards used or abused by Giordano Bruno in building up a system of pantheism, cannot be drawn out here. Nicholas Krebs was the son of a fisherman, born probably in 1401 at Cues on the Moselle. He belonged to that low Dutch race, first cousins, so to speak, of the English, which has done such notable things for science, religion, and government by its tenacious grasp of realities, its silent thought and moderation of speech, its energetic action that scorns the trammels of paper logic. Dwelling along the rivers of Germany and on the edge of the North Sea, this trading people had amassed riches, cultivated a fine art of its own which vies with the Italian, created a network of municipal liberties, and lived a deep religious life, sometimes haunted by visions, 
which might be open to the suspicion of unsoundness when the formal inquisitor from Cologne looked into it with his spying-glass. Yet no one has ventured to brand with that suspicion Thomas Akempis. From this low Dutch people we have received the imitation of Christ. When a Catholic Reformation is spoken of, that little volume, all gold and light, will furnish its leaders with a standard not only of spiritual illumination, but of piety towards the sacrament of the altar, which took for granted the whole Catholic system. Since it was finally given to the world in 1441, it has been the recognized guide of every generation in the Western Church. But with its author, we must associate Cusanus and Erasmus, both of the same stock. These three fill the spaces of transition between the decadent luxury of Avignon and the stern reaction which followed hard upon Trent. By their side appears Cardinal Jiménez, who attempted, among Spaniards, the same work of renovation that Cusanus set on foot among Germans and Netherlanders. To the imitation corresponds, almost as an art to its theory, the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius Loyola. And if Erasmus left no successor equal to himself, he trained a host of disciples or plagiarists in the company of Jesus, where his memory has always evoked a fierce antagonism, and his writings have been put to the ban. Spain and the Netherlands thus became rival centers in a movement which was profoundly Catholic. It sprang up in northern Europe under the influence of the Dominican friars. South of the Pyrenees, it was due to the Benedictines and Franciscans. A third element, derived from the writings of St. Augustine and the rule called after his name, is more difficult to estimate. St. Augustine had ever been the chief Western authority in the schools as in the councils. He, though no infallible teacher, formed the intellect of medieval Europe. But the Cathari, or Waldensians, were fond of quoting him as the patron of their anti-sacerdotal principles, and in the vehement polemics of Luther he is set up against Aquinas. From Deventer, then, we may trace the origin of a reforming tendency which, passing by Alcala and Toledo, takes us on to the Council of Trent. In that assembly, Spanish divines, Lainez or Salmeron, vindicated the scholastic tradition, while popes under Spanish protection tightened discipline and recovered, though late, their lost moral dignity. But from Deventer, likewise, another movement issued forth, in which John of Goch, Wessel, and Gansfurt led up to Erfurt and Wittenberg to the new doctrine of justification by faith alone and to an independent type of religion. In these two reformations, Catholic and Protestant, it will be observed that England, France, and Italy play secondary parts. To the ideas which inspired Thomas a Kempis, Luther, or Loyola, creative or revolutionary as they might be, no English thinker except Ockham contributed, nor did a single French writer anticipate Calvin. And the Italians, almost wholly given up to art or letters, and at no time much troubled with the problems which divided the schools in Paris, 
might seem to have been incapable of grasping a spiritual principle in its pure form until they were subjugated by the Jesuit masters who came in with the Spanish dominion. Yet, as in England, religion had no quarrel with learning, but was revived in its train. So, among Italians, the impressive figure of Savonarola warns us that prophets after the manner of the Old Testament were not wanting, even to the heyday of a classical renaissance. True, the English humanism did but serve to usher in a period, Elizabethan or Jacobian, which was not Catholic, according to the Roman style, and Savonarola was burnt. Yet on the eve of the Reformation, these more spiritual influences were not extinct in the Church. They might have been turned to a saving use, and for a while the Orthodox hoped it would be so. Fra Girolamo, Bishop Fisher, Sir Thomas More, have always been regarded by those who shared their faith as martyrs in the cause of a true Christian morality and as harbingers of a reform which they did not live to see. In the Low Countries, therefore, from the appearance of Tantalin about 1100, and after the growth of Waldensian opinions, though these were by no means peculiar to the Netherlands, much had been done by authority to suppress or convert dissidents. The Black Friars of St. Dominic were called to Antwerp as early as 1247. They acquired almost at once a power which was chiefly exercised in spiritual direction. Their many disciples followed a way of life pure, detached, and simple, the way of the heart rather than the intellect. Another sign which accompanied them was the multiplying of third orders, in which men and women, not bound by vow or shut up within a cloister, strove to lead the higher life. These sodalities must not be confounded with the Turlupins, Begards or Brethren of the Free Spirit, ecstatic, perhaps antinomian fraternities, condemned by Pope John XXII, and abhorred of all good Catholics. If we would understand what precisely was the Dominican training, a delightful instance has been left us in the correspondence of Christine de Stommelin, 1306. But the finest example, as the most celebrated of Flemish masters in the 14th century, is the, quote, admirable Risebrook an earlier Thomas Akempis, who adorns the period which lies between 1283 and 1381, and whose son in the spirit, Gerard Grote, gave a new and lasting significance to the school of Deventer. That flight of the alone to the alone, which we call Christian mysticism, had found no unworthy expression in St. Thomas Aquinas, the angel of the schools, who reasons by set syllogism on all things in heaven and earth. He had sealed with his authority the books translated by Scotus Erigena, which were long attributed to Dionysius the Areopagite, but which are now known to be a production of the 5th century and of the Alexandrian or even Monophysite metaphysics. With severe negations, not wholly foreign to Plotinus, they limit, by exceeding them, the affirmations of the school theology. In the paradoxical phrase of Cusanus, their teaching is a learned ignorance, 
but they exalt the earthly as a shadow of the heavenly hierarchy, and they leave to our adoring worship the man Christ Jesus. From the defilements of sense, the scandals of history, the misuse of holy things, they turn to an inward, upward vision and celebrate the hidden life. It is well known that Eastern hermits joined the work of their hands to prayer, that Cenobites under the rule of St. Basil copied manuscripts, studied the scriptures, and taught in schools, especially the children of the poor. Brought from the plains of the Euphrates to the wild heaths or grassy meadows of Rhine and Isol, this secret doctrine found in Risebrook and Areopagite, in Gerard Groot and Florentius Redevenzen, the masters of its practice, who combined meditation with handicraft, and both with sacred and secular studies. Of these men, mention has already been made in another chapter of the present volume, which deals with the Netherlands. Grote's institution, closely resembling in idea the first thought of St. Francis, was at Constance opposed by the Dominican Grebo, but defended by Gerson. It may be remarked in passing that Gerson, unfairly according to the best judges, criticized the language of Risebrook's ornament of the spiritual marriage as tainted with pantheism. In 1431, Eugenius IV approved the Brethren of the Common Life. Pius II and Sixtus IV showed them much kindness. Florentius, after establishing his Austin canons at Windesham, died in 1400, but his scheme of education prospered. Gerard Zerbold of Zutphen governed and taught in a similar spirit. The communities of sisters fell off in some measure. On the other hand, Groot's foundation at Zwoll developed into a house of studies under John Seal and drew scholars from every side, from Brabant, Westphalia, and even Saxony. In 1402, seven monasteries looked up to Windesham as their mother house. The congregation spread into Germany. In 1409, tumults at Prague, with which University Groat's leading disciples had been associated, drove out thence a multitude of students who had embraced the system of nominalism. They flocked to Deventer, Zwolle, and the other Flemish towns, where that system was upheld against the extravagances of an overbearing realism. The convent and library of Le Rouge Cloître in the forest of Soigny became very celebrated. In these retreats of contemplatives, kept wholesome by hard manual labor, the scriptures were copied and read, the text of the Vulgate was corrected, a treasure of devout wisdom was silently gathered up, whose most precious jewel is the book written by Thomas Akempis, though it did not bear his name. Within thirty years, Windesham had given rise to thirty-eight convents, of which eight were sisterhoods, and the rest communities for men of a strict, yet not unreasonable observance. To the Austin canons established by Florentius we may trace a main current in the Catholic Reformation. The Austin hermits ended in Staupitz and Luther. Education was the daily work of many among the brethren. 
Their school at Hertogenbosch is said to have numbered 1,200 pupils. In Deventer, they taught in the grammar school, and, quote, here in the mother house I learned to write, end quote, says Thomas Hammerkin, who came thither from Kempen as a lad of twelve. Florentius gave him books, paid his school fees, was a father to him. Unlike Grote, who had taken his degree at Paris, Thomas attended no university. He was taught singing. He practiced the beautiful hand in which he copied out the whole Bible. He traveled on business for the monastery, but was away only three years altogether. At Mount St. Agnes he spent just upon seventy years. The keynote of his life was tranquility. He perhaps called his book, not as we do, The Imitation of Christ, but the ecclesiastical music. A reformer in the deepest sense, he accepted church and hierarchy as they existed, and never dreamed of resisting them. Everything that the 16th century called into question is to be found in his writings. He availed himself of an indulgence granted by Boniface IX. He held the Lateran teaching on the Eucharist. He speaks without a shadow of misgiving of the veneration of saints, of masses for the dead, lay communion in one kind auricular confession and penance. To him, the system under which he lived was divine, though men were frail and the world had fallen upon evil days. Those, therefore, who seek in the imitation vestiges of Eckhart's pantheism or prophesyings of Luther's justification by faith alone fail to apprehend its spirit, nor have they mounted to its origin. For Reisbrook is emphatic in asserting free will, the necessity of works as fruits of virtue, the grace which makes its recipient holy. Such is the very kernel of Thomas Akempis, in whom no enthusiast for antinomian freedom would find an argument, and in a temper as active, though retiring, as dutiful, though creative, the movement went on which had begun at Deventer. Thomas records in a series of biographical sketches how his companions lived and wrought. When we arrive at Cusanus, we feel that there could have been no worthier preparation for measures of amendment in the church at large than this quiet process of self-discipline. As a pupil of Deventer, Nicholas Krebs had been brought up in a devout atmosphere. The times drove reformers to take sides with a council which was certain, against a pope who was doubtful. And while Archdeacon of Lutic, Cusanus at Basel in 1433, repeated and enforced the deposing maxims which he had learnt from Pierre Dailly. His pamphlet, On Catholic Concord, gave the fathers in that assembly a text for their high-handed proceedings. But events opened his eyes. Though he had contributed not a little to the compact by which peace was made with the Bohemians, yet, like Cesarini, this learned and moderate man felt that he could no longer hold with a democratic party pledged to everlasting dissensions. He submitted to Eugenius IV. At Mainz and Vienna in 1439, 
he appeared as an advocate of the papal claims. Two years later, Eugenius associated him with Carvajal, of whom more will be said below, on the like errand. Nicholas V, in 1451, gave him a legatine commission to Bohemia, and again he was united with a vehement church reformer, the Neapolitan Capistrano, who was preaching to great multitudes in Vienna and Prague. This renowned progress of Cusanus, which, beginning in Austria, was extended to Utrecht, certainly sheds luster on the lowly-born pope, who had invested him with the Roman purple, appointed him Bishop of Brixen, and bestowed on him the amplest powers to visit, reform, and correct abuses. Yet, the Council of Basel, so anarchical when it attempted to govern the Church, must share in whatever credit attaches to the work of the legate. For the conciliar decree which ordered diocesan synods to be held every year and provincial every three years set on foot a custom fraught in the sequel with large and admirable consequences. We possess information with regard to some 220 synods which were held in various parts of Europe between 1431 and 1520. Of these, Germany claims the larger number. France follows no long way behind, but Italy reckons few in comparison. Nor are these so important as the councils, which were celebrated beyond the Alps. At Florence, indeed, east and west for a moment joined hands. But the union of the churches was one of name rather than of fact. It melted away before popular hatred in the Greek provinces, and its gain to Latins may be summed up in the personality the scholarship, and the library of Bessarion, who spent his days on the futile embassies by which he hoped to bring about a new crusade. The reform of discipline, which in almost every diocesan or provincial synod became the chief subject of argument and legislation, was not undertaken at Florence. End of section 61 Recording by Linda Johnson.